Before They Were Beatles, Episode 2, Beginnings, Elvis, Lonnie and John. This is a story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, January 1956, The Skiffle Craze. The Fab Four, the lovable mop tops, symbols of a generation, musical geniuses, the greatest composers of the age, or just a simple pop group. It doesn't matter how you view the Beatles, there is no denying that John, Paul, George and Ringo were the most recognisable entertainers of the latter half of the 20th century. Even 50 years after the breakup of the group, hardly a day goes past without a mention of the members or a snatch of one of their songs. At the close of the 20th century, the media produced numerous polls and retrospectives on nearly all aspects of culture and art. Predominant among them all were the Beatles. But in all the retrospection, one significant moment in the story of the Beatles and in the development of rock and roll itself was often overlooked. Or more precise, one significant month, January 1956. In the United States, Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel was released to an initially disappointing reaction. They had RCA executives wondering if they should have signed Carl Perkins from Sun instead of Elvis. Perkins had just hit the number one spot with Blue Suede Shoes while still under contract to Sun Records. And what really caused RCA's consternation was the fact that they'd paid $35,000 to Sun Records to release Elvis from his contract, along with a $50,000 bonus to Elvis himself. But by February... Heartbreak Hotel had made it onto the charts, and by March the 10th, it had hit the number one spot in the US. By the mid-1950s, American rock and roll had begun to influence the emerging British teenage scene, primarily through the impact of Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock and the early Elvis hits. Suddenly, the guitar was the ultimate cool accessory for any teenage boys who wanted to impress the girls or show off. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat bags on, join me hot. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. We're going to rock, rock, rock till the broad daylight. We're going to rock, we're going to rock around the clock tonight. When the clock strikes two, three and four. Choices facing these teeny teenagers on how to spend their leisure time was also expanding. The local coffee shops soon became a meeting place for teenagers to hang out, exchange ideas, chat and listen to music emanating from the jukebox. In a seaport with close ties to the transatlantic sea trade like Liverpool, these jukeboxes were often populated with some of the latest American records, bought home by merchant seamen. But the British teenage scene had yet to find a voice of its own. In the same month that Heartbreak Hotel was released in the US, an unassuming record by a jazz band banjo player entered the British charts. Rock Island Line by Lonnie Donegan sparked the imagination of thousands of British teenagers desperate for their own sound and musical outlet. For the next two years, the British Isles bopped to the sound of numerous amateur skiffle bands inspired by Donegan's sound. What made skiffle music popular was its apparent amateurish nature. You didn't have to read music, and the instruments could be fairly basic and homemade. Donegan's innovation was in applying modern production techniques to the basic musical form. 
that he was able to retain its playability makes his achievement all the more noteworthy. The formal definition of skiffle is a type of entertainment that mostly black musicians performed at rent parties in the Chicago district in the 1920s. In fact, the first reference to the name Skiffle appears to be a 1929 recording, Hometown Skiffle, by American blues singer Charlie Spaniel, in which all the instruments played were homemade. The rent parties were generally impromptu concerts put together to earn enough to pay the rent. A combination of whoever turned up and what instruments they played or had made determined the sound produced. As a result, it was difficult to define exactly what type of music was being played. The performers were generally poor without conventional instruments. They sought out any common household object that could be blown, tapped, brushed or converted to make a series of note-like sounds. Common instruments were kettles, with trumpet mouth pieces attached, washboards, where the player wore thimbles on his fingertips and ran them lightly over the corrugated surface to produce the necessary sounds, steel drums, which could either be used as a traditional drum or converted into a bass, and packing crates, which often had broom handle attached along with a string to make them into a bass. Over a period of time, certain homemade instruments began to dominate, a result of their sound and the ease with which they could be obtained. For instance, a washboard could easily be used to play a tune in the evening and be back in service for the following day's laundry. The resulting sound became more unified and known under the name Skiffle. Skiffle thrived in the US as a neighbourhood movement without ever becoming a commercial hit. As people moved around the country trying to find work, its areas of influence spread. And by the late 1940s, it was more easily found in the southern states than in the north where it had originated. It's as a result of this southern migration that Skiffle was introduced into Britain. In the early 1950s, jazz was the hottest sound in Britain. Clubs were springing up all over Europe and bands such as the New Paramount Jazz Band and the Crane River Jazz Band were big stars. Looking to extend their repertoire, many band leaders visited the United States searching for new songs. One popular and obvious destination was New Orleans. In 1952, Ken Collier of the Crane River Jazz Band took a trip to the American South, returning with several new songs and a new sound, Skiffle. Almost immediately on his return to Britain, Collier began promoting this new sound, but not with the Crane River Band, but with his own newly formed band, aptly named the New Orleans Jazz Band. Among the musicians who joined were trombonist Chris Barber and banjo player Lonnie Donegan. The New Orleans Jazz Band only lasted a short time, with Chris Barber soon breaking away and forming his own band, which included Donegan. Both groups began to put Skiffle tracks on their albums, and though it was Collier who was probably Skiffle's most active and vocal advocate at the time, it was Barber who had the first commercial success. His first album included Skiffle versions of classic American railroad songs such as John Henry and Rock Island Line, with both tracks featuring Lonnie Donegan on lead vocals. Rock Island Line, under Donegan's name, was released in the UK as a single in January 1956, where it soon entered the top 10. It was also a number one hit in the US, reaching the top spot a month before Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel. As a result, the Chris Barber Jazz Band went on tour in the States as support for Pat Boone. On the band's return, Donegan, fortified by the success of the single, left and formed his own skiffle group. However, Donegan's group had one major difference from those original bands of the 1920s. His lead instrument was now the guitar. The guitar was on the verge of changing the sound and direction of popular music for generations to come. Donegan's version of Skiffle provided the perfect bridge between the music of the past and the music of the future that rebellious teenagers would adopt as their own. The British teenager had at last found a voice. 
The impact of Donegan and the skiffle craze can be measured by the rapid increase in guitar sales over this period. From 1950 until 1955, the average number of guitar sales per year in Britain numbered around 5,000. By 1957, it was up to 250,000. It's also estimated that by 1957, there were 5,000 active skiffle groups in Britain. The skiffle sound was soon commercialised and the BBC even set aside time for it on youth music programmes like 6-5 Special and Saturday Skiffle Club. Despite its popularity and the literally thousands of groups that appeared between 1956 and 1957, Donegan remained its only real commercial success in the UK. In the next 18 months, Donegan had a string of top 10 hits, beginning with Rock Island Line, but by the end of 1957, Skiffle had peaked in popularity and effectively died away. Despite its short commercial life, Donegan's brand of Skiffle, along with Presley's hip-swivelling antics, would have a lasting impact on teenagers across the British line. Among those influenced by Presley's Heartbreak Hotel and Donegan's Rock Island Line was a diverse group of Liverpool teenagers, 12-year-old George Harrison, 13-year-old James Paul McCartney, 15-year-old Richard Starkey and 15-year-old John Winston Lennon. Part 2. John Lennon Legend has it that John Winston Lennon was born at the height of one of the worst German air raids on Liverpool on October 9, 1940 in Oxford Street Maternity Hospital. It is just that, a legend, and one of the many that became attached to John during and after his short life. According to the reports in the Liverpool Echo newspaper archives, there were no raids that night or for the next 24 hours. The story probably comes from an oft-quoted recollection by his aunt that she had struggled her way across Liverpool during a raid to see a newborn John at the hospital and that as she held him, a bomb went off nearby. This was probably a few days after his actual birth, but the idea of John being born into a troubled world seems somehow apt and it has become part of his ongoing myth. John's father, Freddie, was a merchant seaman who had disappeared months earlier and wouldn't re-enter John's life until his son was four and he tried to lure John into emigrating to Australia, a ploy foiled by John's mother, Julia. Julia was a frivolous, pretty party girl who, after the kidnap attempt, realised that she couldn't give John the steady home life he needed. She entrusted John to her older sister, Mimi, and her husband, George, who worked for a small dairy. Over the years, Julia took on the role of the fun-loving elder sister for John with her free spirit and fun-loving nature. Mimi, on the other hand, was more of a disciplinarian. She was strict but had a heart of gold and was determined to give John as good as life as she could. A central part of that philosophy were her aspirations to be seen as firmly middle class, even to the extent of lying about her husband's status at the dairy where he worked and turning a blind eye to his gambling habit. They lived in the quiet Liverpool suburb of Walton in the south of the city. In many ways, it was the quintessential English middle-class suburb of the 40s and 50s, almost rural in aspect, with established churches, shops and plenty of open parks giving the area a leafy aspect despite its relative proximity to the city centre. Mimi also liked to give the impression that she and George were reasonably well off. The truth was that finances were at times stretched and they took in lodgers, primarily students, to help cover the expenses at Mendips. As, in another example of middle-class pretensions, Mimi had named their pre-war semi-detached house at 251 Menlove Avenue, located on a busy main road in Walton. Under Mimi's care, John soon blossomed and was reading and writing well at, by the age of seven, showing early signs of creativity producing his own illustrated books. He had also developed a keen sense of the absurd from listening to The Goon Show on the radio, a precursor to the anarchic style of humour later popularised by Monty Python, as well as immersing himself in Alice in Wonderland, among other books. John's first school was Dovedale Primary School, where the headmaster was so impressed with him that he told Mimi that John was as sharp as a needle. His religious needs were addressed by attendance at St. Peter's Sunday School with his best friend, Peter Shotton. 
Although it sounds like an idyllic early childhood, John recalled that under the facade he was really living another life, one of manipulation and sometimes physical violence, where John was not the victim but the perpetrator. To quote John, Other boys' parents hated me. They were always warning their kids not to play with me. At the age of 11, John passed the required state examinations and was accepted to Quarry Bank High School alongside his mate Pete Shotton. Pete Shotton was a tall boy, slim, with blonde hair, who lived just around the corner from John at 83 Vale Road. Also living on Vale Road were two other members of the St. Peter's Sunday School crowd and members of John's gang, Ivan Vaughan and Nigel Wally. They would both have roles to play in upcoming months, and in Ivan's case, it would be a very pivotal role that would facilitate one of the most significant moments in rock history. On arrival at Quarry Bank, John continued his aggressive ways in an effort to establish himself as a leader. In a desperate attempt to become popular, he and Pete Shotton soon established themselves as the class clowns, always good for a joke and a lark. And as they worked their way up to school, their grades fell. When John was 13, his uncle George died and left a void in John's life. For while Mimi was the figure of discipline and rules in the house, Uncle George had been the quiet rebel, giving John far more leeway. Into this void stepped his mother, Julia, and John would rush back to her whenever he had any sort of confrontation with Mimi. By 1956, John was in the bottom class and ranked 20th out of 20 pupils. Academically, he couldn't fall any lower. Music would be his salvation. Although John Lennon appeared to have little money of his own to spend, he parted with some of the cash to buy a fragile 10-inch 78 RPM record of Lonnie Donegan's Rock Island line. The large, solid vinyl single was played over and over again, until it was well-worn when the enterprising John then sold it to his school friend Rod Davis for half a crown. Rod Davis was pretty much the opposite of John Lennon and Pete Shotton, and the fact that they were really friends is still surprising. At Quarry Bank, Rod was one of the SWATs, key to do the right thing, be a conformist, and an excellent student. But living at 129 Kings Drive in Walton, he'd been a regular at St. Peter's Sunday School and was therefore a familiar face for John when they all arrived at the large high school. As an old-fashioned traditional school, Quarry Bank still employed the house system, so Rod ended up in Walton House alongside Pete Shotton, Eric Griffiths and John Lennon. While John found something in Lonnie Donegan's musical style that would provide an outlet, it was Elvis that inspired him to play. From the moment he first heard Heartbreak Hotel, the young John Lennon couldn't get enough of Elvis. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of a lonely street at Heartbreak Hotel. to me rock and roll was real everything else was unreal it was the only thing to really get through to me of all the things that were happening to me when I was 15. The direct result was that John was soon pestering his dispersed family for a guitar. The first to succumb to this pressure was, unsurprisingly, his mother Julia. John had spotted an advert for a second-hand Spanish guitar in a popular magazine. The musically inclined Julia scraped together the necessary £10 and soon John was the proud owner of a three-quarter size Galatone Champion flat-top acoustic guitar. There is some argument as to whether John had played an instrument earlier in his childhood and so already had a basic understanding of musical form. In fact, friend Rod Davis recalls that this guitar was John's second and that he had early been in possession of an Egmont guitar, but its origins remain something of a mystery. John himself recalled that initially he used to borrow a guitar. I couldn't play, but a pal of mine had one and it fascinated me. 
At least one source suggests that John had tried to learn and abandoned the accordion as a child and had been given a harmonica by one of the students who lodged at Mendips. Other sources suggest he was given a harmonica by his uncle George and that on a lengthy bus trip to stay with relatives in Edinburgh, Scotland, one summer he'd been taught to play it by the bus driver. Others argue that John's ability to push musical boundaries later in life was as a direct result of his musical ignorance and lack of formal music training. Whichever view you subscribe to, it's well accepted that this cheap mail-order guitar was John's first real exposure to the instrument that would allow him to lead a whole new generation of popular artists. Julia Lennon, a fairly good banjo player, set about teaching her son how to play the guitar by tuning the top four strings to G just like a banjo, the bottom two strings being tuned to the same as the fourth. Having set up his guitar in this style, Julius showed him a few basic banjo-style chords, and armed with this basic knowledge, John applied himself to learning his first real tune, Fats Domino's Ain't That a Shame. You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? My tears feel like rain. While Julia was an active supporter of John's new interest, his aunt Mimi wasn't, seeing it as just another of John's obsessional phases. His constant twanging on the guitar became intolerable for Mimi, and she banished John to the enclosed front porch at Mendips. It didn't take long before the repeated hammering of the banjo chords started to take its toll on the cheap guitar, and John began to pester Mimi to buy him a new, better guitar. Eventually, John's aunt Mimi relented and bought him a guitar from Hesse's music shop in Whitechapel. Over the years, most of Liverpool's bands bought their instruments here, usually on very favourable credit terms, and shop manager Jim Gertie sold Mimi a Spanish model with steel strings for around £17. While Elvis was at the forefront of John's mind, it wasn't long before he discovered that there were other great R&B singers out there as well. John's introduction to the pantheon of American R&B singers came via a school friend, Mike Hall. This boy at school had been to Holland. He said he had this record at home by somebody who was even better than Elvis. The new record was Long Tall Sally. When I heard it, it was so great, I couldn't speak. John had discovered Little Richard and was soon on a mission to hear and find out as much about American R&B music and the roots of rock and roll as he could. In the end, John's almost encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll on both sides of the Atlantic and his ability to draw on it was one of the things that ultimately set the Beatles apart from the other emerging bands of the period. To learn more about the history and impact of some of the songs mentioned in this episode, I highly recommend checking out the A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs podcast. You can find information on Rock Around the Clock in episode 23, Rock Island Line in episode 24, and Heartbreak Hotel in episode 44. In the next episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast, we'll meet George, Paul, and Richie. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Bill Haley, Rock Around the Clock, Lonnie Donegan, Rock Island Line, Elvis Presley, Heartbreak Hotel, Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame, Little Richard, Long Tall Sally. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast on its Twitter account at Before Beatles or email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at beforetheywerebeatles.com. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well. Stay safe and enjoy peace and love. The Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4Js Group, LLC.